Welcome to episode one of our Shades of Blue interview series, where we chat to inspiring people from various creative industries and walks of life about their experiences with mental health. Today, we sat down with ex-IGN senior editor, ex-co-founder of Kinda Funny, and currently founder of the super successful Patreon-funded Colin's Last Stand, the one and only Colin Moriarty, to talk about his experiences with balancing his depression and anxiety with being a small business owner and entrepreneur. Hey Colin, so great to have you on the show. So first of all, could you tell us a bit about you? We obviously know all about what you do, but some of our listeners might not. Um, so tell us who is Colin in a nutshell. Sure. Uh, my name is Colin Moriarty. I'm 34 years old. I've been in the video game industry since I was 18 as a freshman in college and I've been covering video games pretty much ever since. Ever since I got my degree, I went into a different uh, different direction. I was supposed to be an American historian, got a job offer I couldn't refuse in San Francisco and, and took that at IGN. So I ended up becoming the senior editor there. And then I co-founded Kind of Funny, which is one of the first Patreon success stories and a nice YouTube and, and podcast network for nerds. And then in 2017, I founded Colin's Last Stand, which is, I guess, my second company now. And... We just do podcasts about retro things and nerdy things and gaming and eclectic stuff. I, I consider myself a bit of a renaissance man from, a, you know, not necessarily from a knowledge perspective, but certainly from an interest perspective. So I try to, like, kind of let that play out in my in my own content. And so there's, like, kind of something for everyone, I think. That's great. I, for one, really enjoy how diverse your content is. Ben introduced me to your work about five years ago uh, when we were starting our relationship, and I felt that it was kind of conditional for the success of our relationship for me to become a fan of you as well. Oh, thank you very much. But yeah, I really enjoy what a range of topics you cover and how boldly outspoken you are about everything as well. Thank you. Not everyone likes that, but thank you. <laughs> So we're here to talk about mental health. Could you tell me a bit about what you personally struggle with? Sure. You know, like I said, I was th I'm 34, but it, I wasn't. It wasn't until I was 33 actually that I was even officially diagnosed with anything. And I, I am pretty much uh, depressed. I have depression and anxiety, I guess is the way you would want to put it. And you know, I always thought I was anxious and it made me depressed. But in working with my psychiatrist, I found out that the you know the anxiety is a kind of is a manifestation of of my depression and and. I, we always joked that, you know, when I was a kid and a teenager with my friends and even into college in my 20s that I was depressed and pessimistic and and all that. And it was kind of like a joke. But really inside, I was dealing with like a lot and still do deal with a lot of my own inner demons. And, you know, I think the ira the irrationality of it from my own perspective, the fact that I'm really anxious and worried about a lot of things and kind of have OCD tendencies and stuff like that makes it a little more frustrating for me simply because I am aware, I'm self-aware of what's going on. But last year I endeavored to finally try to fix it as opposed to just going to the random psychologist or kind of just dealing with it. And so, um, yeah, so I am just, a, you know, I'm, I'm depressed and I'm anxious. And for the first time on, uh, for the last six months or so, I'm on medication and it's helping. So I, I, I feel like I'm, I don't want to say I'm on the mend because I think we always have to deal with these things, but um, I feel on the upswing for the first time in a really long time, which is nice. That's so interesting. Um, I'm actually on a very similar trajectory myself. I've suffered from depression for most of my life and that periodically has manifested itself as anxiety as well. And I tried medication for the very first time about a year ago and it's really made a very significant difference to my quality of life. One of the reasons it took me so long to try medication is that it's very stigmatized. I was also brought up to be very skeptical of Western medicine. And I was terrified to try antidepressants um, or anything along those lines, antidepressants, anti-anxiety, antipsychotic. Um, I wondered if you'd had a similar experience and if 
starting medication for the first time was a nerve-wracking process for you? Yeah, I went into this psychiatrist that I had been recommended through someone else. This person's actually like the professor of this other psychiatrist. So it came highly recommended. And, you know, I went in and I told him, listen, like I'm I've had a real aversion to medication most of my life, even like Tylenol and stuff. Like if I had a headache, I wouldn't even take that simply because I had this weird theory that if like when I really need it, my body will react in the best possible way. So I shouldn't waste time by taking Tylenol now like an insane person. But for me, I went and looked at it and talked to this dude and was like, listen, I don't really want to take medication, but I really feel like it's probably the next logical step. And so can we take baby steps and kind of, you know, ease into things. And that's exactly what we did. And I talk openly about what I take. I take Lexapro and Ativan every day. And I had originally been on Buspirone and it was the very first time that I had a, a bad reaction to a medication. So I, I wasn't able to take that. But we've started with really low dosages um, because of what we've been talking about, which is like my, my own aversion to medication and to, you know, you hear, especially in the United States here, we are incredibly over-medicated, um, notoriously so. We have medication ads on our television, which is so novel to you know my friends that come from other parts of the world and watch television here. And so I, I didn't want to kind of succumb to what you sometimes hear about some of these medications, that it takes away the highs and the lows, that it, it can turn people into a little bit of a drone or whatever. And because of that, I wanted to start with low you know milligram um, prescriptions, and we've worked our way up from there. And so, yeah, I had to overcome my own aversion to it because I know I needed help. It was... It's easy to tell other people to get help, which I've been doing for a long time, but it was harder for me to convince myself that this was the, the logical step. And I'm, you know, I think like you, I'm glad that I took that step. I really sympathize with that. Um, I started off on a very low dose for the same reason. And I think for anybody who is looking at taking that step and has similar reservations, um, as well as obviously the first step, finding somebody that you really trust not to over prescribe and to be every step of the way through it with you gradually building up the dose and understanding any side effects any reactions is is really important for me I actually am still on the low dose that I started on um, that was enough to do the trick for me but now I would absolutely have no hang-ups or fear about increasing the dose if I needed to yeah me, me I, I totally hear you 100% and I, I feel the same way like it is a little bit of a mental game. And, you know, with Ativan particularly, which is considered a somewhat dangerous drug because of the, the you know, it's a, it's a hard to get off of and, and, it, and it can play with people, whatever. You have to really kind of walk into these situations with, a, with open eyes and understand what you're doing. And I'm, I'm willing to undertake the risks or the stigmas in order to feel better because the, the, the fact of the matter is, is I was really getting tired of feeling the way I was feeling. And so I was really willing to, to throw almost anything out there against the wall to see what would work at that point. So speaking of stigma, you mentioned that when you were younger, um, your depression was the butt of a lot of jokes. And I was wondering what your experience with stigma was then and how or if you've seen things change with that now. Well, it's interesting because certainly things have changed. And it's funny, we're seeing a lot of these kind of seismic shifts in a lot of the ways we deal with different things. I was a history major, and that's like one of my favorite things in the world. And we learned in college, as I'm sure a lot of people know, that even the idea of post-traumatic stress and what they used to call shell shock and stuff like that wasn't even really dealt with for our military men, for our veterans, until really Vietnam to a degree and, and mo mostly Desert Storm and, and the Desert Wars in the 21st century. And I'm just saying that to show that like even in ways where you would obviously be traumatized mentally by the things you've seen and done or whatever, we are still catching up on that front. So it's nice to see the evolution for normal people. And we're talking about the stigma 
the reason that I talk so openly about it, and I talk really openly about it, maybe uncomfortably so to some people, is because A, it's therapeutic for me to do, and B, most importantly, it's reminding people that the stigma shouldn't exist and that they should get help like I'm getting help and like you're getting help. And so I, I try to keep all of those things somewhat balanced in my mind in order to, you know, take care of myself, but also, you know, in my position where, you know, Sacred Symbols, for instance, my PlayStation podcast, a listenership of 50,000 people, it's cool to recommend them a game and they play it and they love it. But it's way cooler if I touch someone's life by telling them that uh, you're not alone. And um, even 10 years or 15 years ago, like we were saying, when I was in college or high school or in my 20s, times have definitely changed. And, and, and you can just sense that in many ways. I think we're becoming a little bit more empathetic to that. And, and so I'm super pleased to be part of that in just a small way. It was funny. Like, I, I'm, I'm perfectly happy making fun of myself in my own so-called condition. It's been the product of many jokes and many laughs for myself and for others. And sometimes you can't explain why you feel a certain way. But in hindsight... I wish I had the strength and the, and the foreknowledge to do this when I was uh, 16, you know, or 20, as opposed to, you know, when I was 33, 34. And to that, how you found that being open about your own personal experiences and struggles has been able to really help other people. My understanding is there is a lot of evidence to show that looking at mental illness from the perspective of other people's anecdotal experience rather than just the science um, is really helpful for people in managing their own struggles and feeling less alone. And that's certainly been my personal experience. So I wondered if that was your experience as well, the difference between actually hearing from people who are going through these struggles and these illnesses in their real day-to-day -day lives versus the very factual clinical scientific reasons that things are happening yeah i think that you know the science doesn't it, actually it's funny because when i go to my psychiatrist i often ask him i'm like well how do we know if it's working because it's not like i'm getting heart surgery it's not it's not some sort it is a chemical imbalance obviously but it's not it's not chemistry that we can measure in a vial or something like that and so it, it has this weird there's this weird stigma with psychiatry, I think, psychology even more, where like it's unprovable, it's unknowable, and the results are sometimes unattainable or or you can guess if they're gonna come or if they're not gonna come. And so I, I try to just deal with it from my own perspective, saying, listen, like I have a problem. There's nothing to be embarrassed about with the problem. And my parents especially were always really good to me. Like my father is a retired New York City firefighter now, but he went back to school and has his master's degree in social work. So he sees people every day, mostly from the FDNY. And so he's got kind of a mind and an empathetic slant towards mental health as well that I think assisted me in my 20s and slowly tried to get me comfortable with saying like, hey, it's not normal that you feel this way. Uh, it's not normal that you isolate yourself. It's not, you know, these kinds of things aren't normal. You have to embrace the fact that you are pessimistic, for instance, with the fact that you are too pessimistic, if that makes any sense. And so I wanted to, um, I don't know, I just wanted to do something good, I guess, for people out there. I've said it ad nauseum, but like, it's cool if someone plays Final Fantasy Tactics or something because of me. It's way cooler if I, f I get messages every day from people almost saying that I help them in some way that has nothing to do with the content. And that's what's most important for me. If I could just leave that legacy behind and know I helped, then that's way better than, you know, talking about video games or whatever. That's really awesome. So how have depression and anxiety impacted your career path to date? The funny thing is, is that the my anxiety... Uh, has probably helped my career path in some way. It's manifested itself in uh, workaholism. By the way, it's not a positive thing to be a workaholic. I wouldn't recommend it. But I am so anxious about the results, about making sure, like my a lot of my anxiety was always rooted in 
can I live? Do I have money? Do I have a place to be? Am I saving money? What if something really bad happens? I'm always waiting for the other shoe to drop. So this has caused me to actually make really intelligent decisions with my money and like work my way up a corporate ladder and found two businesses and stuff. So in a strange way, the anxiety has managed to manage to allow me to harness this really productive energy that allowed me to create two companies and and make a good living and and secure myself against those rational fears so that my mind only focuses on the more irrational fears. And once that happened, once I crossed that threshold, I realized that the problem existed. So in an ironic way, I don't want to like encourage people to use their anxiety for good. But for my for me, the way my anxiety manifests itself. I need to get rid of the things that I can worry about in the real world in order to focus on the fake things in my mind that are not real, like that I'm going to you know, lose all my money or that the government is you – know, the, there's going to be a monetary crisis and I'm going to lose all my savings or something. You know, completely irrational and, and, and crazy things, frankly. Um, so if that makes any sense, like I didn't want to get laid off at IGN, so I'd work Saturdays and Sundays. I'd work late. And, and, and that don't, didn't only secure my job. That got me promoted like four times, you know? So it kind of worked to my benefit, but I came up, came to a point a couple of years ago where I'm like, I can't quite live like this anymore. I can't quite work like this anymore. And harnessing the good out of something bad is nice, but you also have to acknowledge the bad part, the bad side of the coin, you know? Yeah, 100%. Um, I found with my anxiety, it's, I suppose, high functioning. So rather than experiencing panic attacks or freezing, it's more a, a low level fear that's present all the time. And it's about really irrational phobias and things that I shouldn't be expending energy on but a lot of the time I think it's about quite practical issues or practical possibilities and it means that I always have plans b c and d prepared and there have been many occasions where that's been extremely useful to have and one of the fears I had about um, starting medication was that maybe it would take away the beneficial side of that fear and anxiety so I was wondering if you had any of the same reservations about taking medication for those reasons I mean I personally didn't find that it affected me at all in that sense but it was definitely a concern yeah I was afraid there were a few things I was afraid of um with the Ativan, I was afraid of kind of the addictive qualities of that you know it's just like Xanax or anything else the, the kind of uh, you know the, there's a theory that you'll be basically taking this for the or I will be taking this for the rest of my life conceivably and you kind of have to like overcome that because the chemistry changes in such a way that you really can't go back or can't easily go back. And that, that certainly was a fear of me starting to begin with, but certainly I didn't want to turn, you know, the, the few productive angles of my condition into something that I wouldn't be able to take advantage of anymore. And I am proud to say as, although you, you, maybe it's not something to be proud to say, I am proud to admit that it, it hasn't affected those little things like I still want to work hard. I still want to earn. And it really is a way of me checking boxes in my life every day to make sure that like the rational things are taken care of again so I can focus on the completely irrational things in my mind. And is it irrational to 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 not want to be, you know, broke? Is it irrational? None of those things are irrational. I'm always amazed here in the United States, you know, half of all working adults can't even pay a $400 emergency. There's a crisis of of confidence in terms of what people are making and all that kind of stuff. And I don't have to worry about that. I always try to actually take courage from people who live more normal lives and have children and, and things that they have to worry about and mortgages and, they, and they're having a hard time making ends meet and they still go out to the bar with their friends and they still socialize and they still go to the birthday party and they still put a smile on their face. And so I try to like take all of these different experiences and kind of meld them into an amalgamation that makes the most sense for me. And 
you know, I, I've tried to to just do right by myself. And even with this medication, um, it hasn't changed those underlying foundations for me that allow me to be like a successful businessman and stuff. But I also don't want to make it sound like, you know, like you can always utilize whatever's ailing you for good, because obviously that's not possible. So when you're not able to turn it around into a positive, aside from medication, what other coping mechanisms do you use? Obviously, you've gone from a super high stress job employed in a very competitive industry to the new stress of being a, an entrepreneur and uh, self-employed. Yeah, it's definitely a new kind of stress. It's definitely a different, more existential kind of stress. So that, there's that's interesting uh, to, to willingly put yourself in that position twice, which is what I've done. But, you know, I, I think part of me, there might be this underlying like subconscious part of me that feels like I need to challenge myself in order to like keep myself going that if I fell into like a desk job or like made my you know had my normal you know salary man position like they might call in Japan or whatever and and just go to work nine to five and leave and have my normal family and my normal hobbies or whatever I don't feel like I feel like I'd lose touch with with myself and what makes me special from this particular perspective of harnessing these positive energies out of something inherently negative and so again the entrepreneurship has been I think benefited by just harnessing the seemingly negative or obsessive qualities about who I am and what I do into more positive things. So I'm I'm all over my email typically. I'm all over my finances and I'm I'm corresponding with my lawyer and making like again I, I look at it as almost a, like a Ubisoft game of like box checking. You know I have like I have to get up and I'm like I need to do this 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 and this and then I look forward to the end of the day when I don't have to do any of those things anymore. And so. You know, I have to be clear that like I am I, I don't know if I'm proud to say, but I've never had like a panic attack. I've never been like completely debilitated, like where it's like I can't do anything right now. You know, I always try to like push through it because in my mind, I'm going to it will only get worse if I don't take care of what I need to take care of. I think being busy has been an advantage. And I don't know if that that would be the case for everybody, but um, taking my mind off of things and, and utilizing those things for good, I think, has been a great strength of, of my brand, actually, you know, and fo- and focused me and allowed me to cultivate relationships and conversations like this one that otherwise might not have ever happened. With being busy and working all the time, have you ever experienced burnout? Yeah, definitely. I were I, I mean, I am I I'm a deeply rooted workaholic. It, it comes from my father, who was a deeply rooted workaholic. And my brother, Dagan from Knockback, is a even bigger workaholic than I am. So there's something. I don't think it's genetic, but it, there's something with the way we were raised that makes us want to work and provide or whatever the case might be, just like our dad did. And I reached those moments where I'm like, I just don't want to do anything anymore. And I, I kick the can down the road and, you know, I, I try to, you know, go about my business in a more in a more metered way. But I've never missed a podcast posting. I've never missed like any content that I had promised or whatever. I just do it a little later. So I burn out, but it's not a permanent thing. Like I'll burn out for a day or two and be like, you know what? I ha- This doesn't have to go up till Monday. It's Thursday. I don't really need to do this right now I'm going to take some time for myself and that's basically what I do to kind of monitor that because as you know as an entrepreneur like if something doesn't get done if my freelancers aren't paid it's my fault if I didn't go to the my meeting with my lawyer it's my fault if this thing didn't get posted it's my fault so that's what kind of like keeps me dry you know driving this car forward but there's no doubt that I get burned out and there's no doubt that I succumbed recently to the burnout so bad that I finally finally hired an editor which I could have afforded to do a long time ago but was something that I, I, I'm so OCD and so hands-on that it was hard for me to even relinquish that much control over my product. So I saw the warning signs and realized I needed to stop working like 70 hours a week and maybe take it down to, you know, 50 or 60. It's really great that you were able to recognize the warning signs and were so proactive about uh, 
nipping it in the bud before it started really impacting your business. Um, that was where I actually made a, a grave mistake in my own business. Um, I just ignored it and ignored it and ignored it and uh, until it became really, really debilitating. And through that, I was forced to delegate. I was forced to give a lot of responsibility to other people. And it sounds like it was similar for you. It really had to get to the point where you were forced to delegate to actually take the plunge and do that. Is it as bad as you thought it would be? No, it's not as bad. I, I started letting go of two of my shows, Knockback and Fireside Chats, to someone else, and it's been good. I think it's been a total positive. I don't think I'll ever be able to let go of editing Sacred Symbols myself. That's kind of like my baby. But even then, it just it's amazing what mental bandwidth means and like how it can be freed up just by making very simple decisions, like trusting people to do things the proper way. And I actually tweeted about it the other day that that's like the most underspoken thing about my time as a business owner in both of my businesses is like no one talks about trust, like finding people you trust. It's always about competence, which is important, of course. But me trusting someone was like a really you know big step for me. Yeah, I noticed the warning signs like there was like a lethargicness kind of creeping into my life for the first time over the last few months where I'm like, ah, you know, like I'm doing pretty well financially. I don't really have anything to worry about. I sold my old company. So there's that kind of source of income and I should just kind of maybe I can just kind of chill. And then like I quickly punched myself in the face, metaphorically speaking, and I um, was like, no, that's not who you are. Like you are a driven person. You're moving forward. So what can we do to ameliorate these problems so that you are creative again and creating things? And that was the solution I came to, which was to find an editor, this guy named Dustin, who's really great, who who edits all my stuff and uh, that I can just pass things off to and I don't have to worry about it. And I'm so surprised that business owners don't talk about that more, you know, about trust. It was like a big thing for me to uh, to overcome. Sure. And trust is really everything. I would much sooner bring on somebody who I trust to do the best job um, and to listen and to be proactive than somebody who has a really great skill set on paper. I absolutely, I absolutely agree. And I've always been open-minded to like anyone being, you know, willing and able to help me with skill sets that don't necessarily correlate to what I'm trying to do. Cause I, I think people are much more capable than, <laughs> than a lot of other people give them credit for. And so I was, so I was looking for that intangible as opposed to the skill set. I'm absolutely there with you. Definitely. And um, I also think that being one of the first few team members in a startup you need to be open to an extremely diverse role and sometimes somebody who has a load of experience in one area there's quite a lot that they need to unlearn about their working processes to be able to slot into that type of role um, so sometimes it's better to have somebody with fairly limited experience but loads of enthusiasm um, who can take on everything that that type of startup role will throw at them indeed indeed and you know, founding the second business and doing it by myself as opposed with three other partners, I learned things that I didn't even know I needed to know. And it was a lot, you know. So that was another thing that kept me going. Like I had no ch I had no time to swoon, really, because, you know, the, the reason I announced Collins Last Stand, uh, by the way, like I quit kind of funny and announced Collins Last Stand the next week. The reason I did that was because I knew I had to force myself to keep doing things or I would just become passive and lazy and let you know the mental things going on in my mind take over so so yeah it's been a total learning experience and learning on the fly as i'm sure you know and it's it's been an it's been a welcome distraction and also a welcome exercise against kind of the ways we fall back on our own minds in negative ways so i look at the entire experience of entrepreneurship as like a complete positive and i i can never imagine working for someone ever again oh god yes i can definitely identify with that so it's probably a good moment to ask, what would be your number one piece of advice if you haven't covered it already for somebody who's in a high stress job, whether it be employed or self-employed, uh, for balancing that role with their mental health? 
I think you have to kind of, I mean, from my, you know, from my layman perspective, I have a bachelor of arts in history, so you can take what I say with a grain of salt. But from my experience and my perspective, I, I really feel like you have to identify what you think the problems might be and then navigate around them. But you can also, like we were talking about before, I think you can leverage some of these as strengths. And I think that that might give you the, even if it's not real control, it might give you the feeling of control, which I think is a positive, like we all want control in some way of our lives and of our fate and our destiny and all of that. And so in a professional setting, whether you're at the lowest end of the totem pole or you're the CEO of your own company or whatever, I think identifying what might ail you and then how to both fix those problems, but also utilize and leverage some of those things that might be a problem in some situations, but aren't a problem in other situations. So like my obsessiveness is a really huge problem for me in lots of different ways, but it is definitely not a problem for me when I'm copy editing. It's definitely not a problem for me when I am meticulously editing a podcast all day or putting a video together or a script together. Without that meticulousness, my content wouldn't be as good. And I'm not saying my content is good. I assume people think it's good or they wouldn't listen to it or watch it. So I, I think it's about identifying and then I think it's about kind of segmenting out and creating verticals of like, this vertical needs to be taken care of. Like I wasn't sleeping, for instance. That needed to be taken care of. There's no positive about for, like not sleeping. You can't spin that into a positive. But if you, say, if you say to someone like, wow, Colin's particular mentality makes him very concerned about the finer points of a deal, the finer details of what's happening, well, that's a, that's a huge positive. And that actually might have driven me to this position that I'm in now. So, so that's kind of my, you know, my, my give and take kind of philosophy. Um, and honestly, the give wasn't something that I really you know, uh, did anything about until like the last year. So again, take me with a grain of salt. If there's, if there's one piece of advice I can put out there, it's like, don't wait till you're 33 years old to... Uh, to deal with what probably should have been dealt with a long time ago. Now, this is a question I'm asking purely because I want to know the answer for myself, although I'm sure the listeners will also be very interested in your answer. Given that you suffer from anxiety, what's given you the courage to be so controversial and outspoken? I feel like I can't let people dictate the terms by which I speak my mind. You know, As I'm sure you guys know, and you have tr similar traditions in Britain that we do here in the United States, we are born free. We have the right to speak our minds and we have the right to kind of enter public discourse in a way respectful or disrespectful as long as we're not breaking any laws. And so for me, I look at it and say, like, I'm not going to be bullied into submission and I'm certainly not going to let people use the leverage they think they have over me by making fun of me. So for me, I it's a reminder. I, I have to remind myself to continue to be outspoken because it is difficult. It's difficult to be attacked. It's difficult to be different. It's difficult to be blamed for things that you didn't even say or do to be looked at in a certain way in an industry that really doesn't like you very much, even though you didn't really do anything. But I take strength in the, the legions of people that have followed along with me because I speak for them as a sort of proxy against whatever is going on out there. So even though you would think and you'd think right that my outspokenness has weighed negatively on my mind and my life at times, and it certainly has, and I can easily just ameliorate that problem by stopping talking. I refuse to stop talking because that's who I am. And why should one side or one viewpoint be the only side or only viewpoint that's expressed? That's what that's what's had, that's what's given me the courage to to be so called controversial. But it's important to note that I don't go out to be controversial. Like I don't write a tweet and then go like this is going to be. This is my controversy today. You know, um, it's the same thing with like the tweet I wrote that got me in trouble. It kind of funny. It's like, I, a, that's not even remotely the worst thing I've ever said on Twitter. And B, we can joke and be and have levity and be stupid. And, you know, I don't know. I, I just I want to just be me. I want to be myself. I think I'm the brand, you know. So if I stopped and and I, I must also say, Charlie, to be to be honest, that when I stopped speaking so much, people 
regularly reach out to me and ask me to speak up more. And so I was like, you know what? Why am I seeding the ground to people that don't like me anyway? I'm never going to say anything that wins them over. And I'm not saying anything extraordinarily weird or different anyway. So that's kind of where I get the courage. That makes complete sense. Um, and as you say, there's now this responsibility as well as just expressing your opinion because you want to. You're speaking for a lot of other people who look to you to do that for them as well. Yeah, I don't. I just don't want, like I said, I just don't want people to dictate the terms of like, I, I am a free man. I am born free. I have, uh, you know, inalienable rights. You know, I'm going to speak my mind and, I, I, and, and you in turn are allowed to speak against me. I mean, that's just the way it goes, you know. Uh, but this idea that like we we shouldn't have new ideas and different ideas and challenge the status quo. And obviously in the United States, we're way more conservative than you guys are over the pond, but um, like as a general like basis starting point. Um, but I'm not going to like sit around, for instance, and I don't want to make this political, but I'm not going to sit around and watch like, you know, a neo-socialist movement encroach in the United States and not say anything about it because I'm afraid people on Twitter are going to be mean to me. You know, that's insane. So like, I'm going to say what I need to say and we'll see where the cards fall, but I'm not going to be quiet, you know? And if they want to send me to the guillotine later when they take over, that's that's obviously the, up to them. And I'm sure it would be so worth <laughs> it. Um, so our final question is something we ask everyone. What would your protest sign say? Uh, I, it's funny. I read this and I was thinking about it uh, last night. Uh, my protest sign uh, would say, uh, no matter what, the government is always too big. That's what uh, that's what my, my protest sign would, would say. And I would stand in, in Washington, D.C. or London if I was over with you guys and uh, and, and hold that sign up. I'm, I'm a big believer in individual freedoms and the, and the power of the individual. And so I don't want any powers in our lives that can infringe upon that sacred power of the individual because – you know, some of us are spiritual, some of us aren't. I'm an atheist, but I believe in one thing for sure, that we have one shot at this. We have one chance. And uh, I would rather live a life free and unencumbered uh, than live a life under the yoke of anyone and any uh, ideology or any strongman or any political party or anything like that that would uh, seek to infringe on my own free will. Um, so I think that that's what my protest sign would say is uh, I was originally going to do there's a there's a guy named Grover Norquist in the United States. He's a bit of a villain with a lot of people, but he's uh, like this anti-tax guy. And uh, he has this famous quote that says, uh, the government should be so small that you can drown it in a bathtub. Uh, and I was going to say that as my sign, but that would be plagiarism. So instead, I'm going to, yeah, just, yeah. <laughs> oh, no, I think I like yours even better. Um, well, thank you so much, Colin, for speaking with us and being so open and articulate. Um, I'm sure the listeners will really appreciate your insights and answers to the questions. Um, so thank you so much for joining us. You can find Colin on any self-respecting podcast app under Colin's Last Stand. We are also really excited to be collaborating with Colin on an exclusive patch, which is going to be available for pre-order through our website. This is a patch that can be sewn or pinned onto clothing or accessories or really whatever you can stick a pin in. And proceeds from sales of the patch are going to be going 100% towards our Shades of Blue platform so we can build out more for raising awareness and offering support around mental health within the creative industries. You can find the patch available for pre-order at charliecohen.com. That's charlie, C-H-A-R-L-I hyphen cohen, C-O-H-E-N dot com. If you navigate through to our shop and then through to the forge, you'll see that you can pre-order the patch as a standalone or there are a range of garments that you can also have it applied to by us. 
If you have any personal stories or experiences or opinions that you'd like to share through Shades of Blue, please contact us. We're always really open to chatting to different people from different walks of life and really the more insights and conversations that we can offer our listeners the better. We really appreciate you listening to episode one of our podcast. We hope you continue to enjoy the upcoming episodes. Our next one is with the wonderful Alicia Judge. Oh, we're giving it away. Don't have to. We just did. (laughs) We don't have to give it away. (laughs) No, I'll keep that in. It's fine. Okay. You can keep that in as well. Whatever. (laughs) You can say anything else. Yeah. To find out more about Shades of Blue, you can visit charliecohen.com again and navigate to the Shades of Blue section of the website where we have articles and events and basically everything that's going on within the platform. And you can also follow us on Instagram and contact us by DM on Instagram at Charlie Cohen. That's C-H-A-R-L-I-C-O-H-E-N. We will be putting links in the description below to Colin's Last Stand and also to our various channels, The Patch, Shades of Blue, Instagram, etc. So please come and say hey to us across our various channels. And we look forward to speaking with you guys again next. Well, next. Ben, you're editing the podcast. When's next? We haven't agreed. We haven't agreed <laughs> a time frame for these to go up. So Soon. I, I have no idea. Soon. Um, I'd like to say that it was going to be regular, but we can't promise anything right now, really. Okay. We can't promise anything right now, really. But Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, guys. But uh, we promise that episode two will be coming along soon. And if you follow us... <laughs> On the channels that we'll be linking to below, you will find out exactly when that might be. But we promise it will be worth the uncertainty and anticipation. Oh, so worth it. And, uh, oh, yeah, we thank you to Pete Bill for our intro music. Thank you, Pete. And outro music. What a legend. That you'll be hearing at the beginning and end of every single episode. So there we go. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.